0: Welcome, everyone, to Progressive Christian Voices today and tomorrow. My name is Brian Elaine, and I'm the founder of Compassionate Christianity and Writing for Your Life. Um, It's a pleasure to host this series of prominent progressive Christian authors and activists. Today is the seventh webinar in this series, and we'll have one additional webinar on Thursday. Joining us today are Shane Claiborne, Michael W. Waters, and Jennifer Butler. Shane Claiborne is a prominent speaker, activist, and best-selling author. He worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta and founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. He heads up Red Lever Christians, a movement of folks who are committed to living as if Jesus meant the things he said. What a concept. Shane is a champion for grace, which has led him to jail advocating for the homeless and to places like Iraq and Afghanistan to stand against war. Now now grace fuels his passion to end the death penalty and help stop gun violence. Shane's books include Jesus for President, Common Prayer, Becoming the Answer to Our Prayers, his classic, The Irresistible Revolution, and his newest book is Beating Guns. Shane was also a contributor to our recent book, How to Heal Our Divides, A Practical Guide. So welcome, Shane. Good to be with you. (laughs) Dr. Michael W. Waters is the founder and lead pastor of the Abundant Life African Methodist Episcopal Church in Dallas, Texas. He's appeared on ABC Nightline, CBS This Morning, NPR, NBC, PBS, many other venues. He's also been featured in many print and online media outlets. A best-selling national award-winning author, Michael is a two-time winner of the prestigious National Wilbur Award for Mm -hmm. his book, Stakes is High, Race, Faith, and Hope for America, and for Beautiful Black Boys Who Believe in a Better World. Mm -hmm. Publishers Weekly calls his latest book, Something in the Water, a 21st century civil rights odyssey, a blistering critique of white supremacy and racial injustice, and an incisive work that should be a wake-up call to Americans in general and the church in particular. Michael is the national vice chair of Foot Soldiers Park, an educational center in Selma, Alabama, and an executive board member of the Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. Michael, too, was a contributor to our recent book, How to Heal Our Divides, a practical guide. Reverend Jennifer Butler is a founding executive director of Faith in Public Life, which works to change the narrative about the role of faith in politics, wins major policy victories, and empowers religious leaders to fight for the common good. Jennifer was the chair of the White House Council on Faith and Neighborhood Partnerships and spent 10 years working in the field of international human rights, representing the Presbyterian Church USA at the United Nations. Jennifer also served in the Peace Corps in a Mayan village in Belize, Central America. Uh, Jennifer is the author of Who Stole My Bible and Born Again, The Christian Right Globalized, which calls for a religious response to the global culture wars of the religious right. She's written about progressive faith on Pathos, faith in public life, Sojourners the Hill, religious news service, and I'm sure plenty of other venues. So thank you all three of you so much for uh, joining us here today. Welcome.
1: For sure. Thank you.
2: Great to be here.
0: I was telling other folks, I mean, you know, one of the best aspects of my job is that I get to hang out with all these like really smart, really caring, (laughs) really thoughtful, really active people. You know, it's sort of like pandemic or Zoom, I don't care. I just love (laughs) hanging out with these great people. (laughs) (laughs) So today I'm going to ask the panel several questions, but if anyone else would like to ask as well, you know, please feel to type something into the Q&A box or chat box. Maybe we could each start by having each of you talk about whatever your latest project is, um, whether it's, you know, a book you recently completed or some other major project that you want to let folks know about. And Jen, why don't
2: we start with you? Great. Um, Yeah, the project I'm working on right now is how to protect access to the ballot box in this coming year. We've been laying groundwork for that. We've been um, really advocating for national legislation that would prevent all of these voter suppression laws from going into effect. You know, Since the last election, Republicans have pushed forward uh, barriers to the ballot box in 19 states, 19 states. And federal legislation could roll that back and correct that and set us on a better path going forward Um, But we're working now at the state level and the federal level and rolling out plans to make sure voters can get to the ballot box uh, come this fall. And uh, we'll be launching a major effort around that. And so we're just putting all the pieces in place, even as we advocate real time um, against even more legislation coming up here in January and February in states like Georgia.
0: That's an incredibly uh, important area. And um, during the last webinar, I was talking with folks about another initiative, similar initiative called Turnout Sunday. Hmm. Are you familiar with that? It's a joint uh, program with Sojourners, the Skinner Leadership Institute, Georgetown University, um, a couple of others that I don't remember the names of. Um, I think an African-American clergy network, too, um, you know, Michael may be familiar with. But in any event, it's I think it's turnoutsunday.com or .org, but in any event, you know, very um, highly aligned with what, what you're all are doing. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing I want to ask Jennifer is how can the rest of us get involved? What are the ways that we can support that effort?
2: Yeah, great. Well, you can um, look at our website, faithinpubliclife.org, and sign up um, because we'll be sending instructions out. Um, and we're going to convene a... Um, sort of election protection network that will be um, of strategic leaders that will be meeting throughout the year to design strategies and to build uh, leadership councils and infrastructures in states that are going to be most affected by these efforts to prevent voters from getting to the ballot box. Um, So you'll be able to sort of join that coalition. We'll have ongoing webinars and how to prevent violence, um, how to um, you know, bring up voting issues in your own locale, um, and, uh, we'll just be, uh, galvanizing the whole, you know, faith community around the country. We did this right post, um, election up through inauguration to make sure as well that, um, the votes of the 2020 election were certified and to prevent efforts for, um, you know, of, of uh, allegations of uh, voter fraud, et cetera. And uh, we're able to really be successful in that. And so we'll we'll expand that in the coming year. And you can just sign up at our website at faithandpubliclife.org.
0: Good, good. Well, we'll try to do our best to help get the word out about that. Um, Michael, how about you? What's
1: latest in your neck of the woods? Well, first, it's a delight to be with all of you uh, this afternoon, this afternoon for me now, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, grateful to share with you. Uh, just announced today, which is a great blessing, I am now formally a Emerson Collective Fellow who will be a part of that work over the course of the next year, focusing on strengthening our democracy. So I'm a part of the democracy cohort. And my emphasis studying research will be in the area of storytelling, how storytelling helps to strengthen democracy. Uh, which is a part of the work that I've been engaged and I'm looking forward to expanding over the course of this this next year. And So a good portion of what I've been doing has been preparing for that work and a part of the preparation for that work. I know that you and Shane know this well. I have a growing and extensive um, um, collection of artifacts uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, white supremacist relics, as well as artifacts from uh, the Black American experience. And a few that have recently come in, I've got some more that are on the way, but really been archiving and uh, identifying and, and thankfully receiving additional artifacts. Uh, this is from the city of Charleston. Uh, this is a freedman's badge. Um, my ancestors used to have to wear this badge around this neck, their necks if, in fact, they were freed persons so that they would not be uh, apprehended and returned. Uh, into slavery. And so this is from the city of Charleston. It's kind of hard to see with the glare, but it has freedmen uh, registration number 112. I think it's very important to understand how organized white supremacy has always been. Mm-hmm. So this was a registered aspect of that reality also from uh, the city of Charleston. Uh, this is a slave badge. Let me see if I can get it closer to you, maybe wow. for the camera. Uh, 1856 Porter again, registered number 52. And so uh, mm-hmm. this was given to enslaved persons who were on lease. That was another way that enslavers, you know, made money, was they leased out uh, their enslaved to others. And so this was the badge, mm-hmm. a hall pass, if you will, to mm-hmm. let people know it was okay for you to be Black and in public, right? Which gives some reminiscence of the challenges we have today. Very quickly, uh, this has also been getting a lot of things from the Carolinas. This is a plantation police badge. Isn't that interesting? Plantation police. Any white man could be deputized as part of the plantation police with the sole purpose of recapturing, re-enslaving those who only yearn to be free and bringing them back uh, into bondage. And then finally, which I am particularly uh, mesmerized and grateful that I have in my possession now, as I think it will be very important to tell in the story. This is a manila bracelet. Any of you ever seen this? Are you aware of it? Familiar with this history? If you were to see the color, it's, it's a little bit of an aqua blue. That's because this was recovered from a shipwreck. This was a shipwrecked item, right? Uh, this item was used by Europeaners when they went to West America, West Africa, to purchase my ancestors. So six to eight of these, and they were usually bronze or copper, six to eight of these bracelets would be enough to purchase a human being. And wow. so this is what I'm attempting to uh, draw uh, into my collection as a part of our extended work in telling the story of democracy, mm-hmm. how we got here, and what we must do to improve from this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's been what's been going on in my neck of the world. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing those.
0: My goodness. And I'm so glad that you're becoming kind of a focal point for pulling that stuff together.
1: Well, it's, it's been a passion. Uh, I think that it makes it real. You know, uh, Shane, and, and you've seen this multiple times. I got a lot of things in ready reach. <laughs> but this is an authentic second generation. Oh, yeah. clan hood. You've seen me share this before. Yeah. with robe, And I have some more clan paraphernalia that's on the way. Again, it just makes it real. You know, white supremacy is not just this mythology. It's not just something that is uh, in the air. You can actually it's tangible. You can touch it. There are bodies, uh, unfortunately, that have been failed. There are systems and structures that have been at work. And, uh, and and so whether it's engaging young people or engaging adults, I think this adds another layer to the realness of our experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for sharing that with us.
2: Mm.
0: Shane, I know you're always a busy guy and on the go. What, what's the latest uh,
3: that you've been up to? Oh well, it's good to be with you, Brian. It's Always good to be with uh, Jim Butler and Michael Waters. This is a great day, uh, I, I, Michael. I got I got one of those uh, uh, plantation slave patrol badges in the antique store here, and uh, there must be too many of them down here in North Carolina. Let me tell you. But uh, uh, since it's show and tell, um, I brought a few things too, Brian. I brought my. These are my. You know, I've been making shovels out oh, yes, of uh, yes. guns so this is one of I've got a whole pile of them here because I've been working hard I find it's very therapeutic you know you we in the pandemic you get cabin fever so I got to get out and beat some AR-15s in the garden tools and stuff so that's been my hobby been good for my it's been my therapy too uh, but you know I've got all of these um and my buddy's making the uh, handles now out of the gun stock so that's pretty awesome and I got my my uh, cross here because i always say the the cross and the gun give us two different versions of power right one of them says i'm willing to kill and one of them says i'm willing to die and uh so that's been you know part of what i've been up to michael's got one of those down there i think don't you reverend michael <laughs> and uh uh but you know i've i've also been doing a lot around the death penalty and here's where you know i think of the the reason i got involved in gun violence and the death penalty is as I looked at what the Christian community is doing uh, on those two issues, we're not only silent, we're actually a part of the problem. Uh, Christians and white evangelicals in particular are the highest gun owning demographic in America. And we're also the biggest supporters of the death penalty. And um, I mean, the fact is that the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance in America if uh, uh, Christians decided to abolish it. So we've been trying to persuade some hearts and minds on that. And, um, I was just uh, in DC uh, uh, with a big group of people. We had 300 different organizations. Uh, sign up together to for we, this is what we've been saying, Brian. Abolish and demolish. Abolish the death penalty and demolish the the execution chamber. Mm. So um, that's been our call. And we had a meeting with the White House, uh, Michael McBride and Tracy Blackman. There was a great group of us in in D.C. together, and uh, the White House agreed to meet to discuss. The possibility of the demolition of the federal death chamber—wouldn't that be something? Wow, (laughs) we could go. I want a brick, Michael. I want a brick on my desk so I can flash that. There's some more artifacts, but you know, I I kind of think of the death penalty. All these things intersect, but it is such an icon of the residue of slavery and racism, and it's—it's kind of like in Tennessee you know, we had a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the KKK, in the Capitol until this year, right? And you're like, we got to get that thing out. And, and we got all kinds of other things that we need to be doing. But abolishing the death penalty, you know, is is really up there because I think it represents so many other things too. You know, the, the, uh, the brokenness of the criminal justice system, um, the disproportionate ways that we uh, see p- people of color, you know, on death row, but also in, in imprisoned. And, you know, where lynchings were happening 100 years ago is exactly where executions are still happening today. Uh, so that's what I've been up to, man. And I'm we got two executions this week that are scheduled uh, for Thursday. So we'll be hosting vigils online. Hmm. Uh, but um, we also, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to uh, do a bunch of other collaborative work too. So Michael and I we're we're doing a children's and youth, uh, book club this month at Red Letter Christian. So Michael and I'll be together on a Sunday evening. And, uh, so yeah, all kinds of good stuff.
0: Well, excellent. I mean, you guys are all so productive and so active with doing such important things, you know, so amen for that. And, you know, you know, may God be with all of your efforts. I mean, (laughs) I can't wish for anything more than that, honestly. So, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you all have written some phenomenal books, but I know so you're also readers. So I'd love for you to share with folks what you've been reading lately by other authors that you're most uh, interested in or most wanting to share with folks. So Michael, you want to go first on that one?
1: Absolutely, I can. I, I think part of my, uh, because of my work and focus, I've been reading a lot of old magazines. That's <laughs> what I've been reading. Uh, and so uh, this is one of them. This is uh, Ebony Magazine, which is somewhat shuttered down, but used to be, you know, one of the gold standard of uh, back periodicals in our nation. And this is from May of 1965, uh, following the uh, Selma to Montgomery march. Oh. And so I've been identifying these old, you know, tracking them down, getting my hands on these old historic uh, magazines and wanting to read the you know eyewitness, uh, firsthand information about you know what was happening at that at that moment in time, you know I've been privileged to lead uh, pilgrimages through the Deep South. It's hard for me to believe in nearly twenty years uh, in civil rights pilgrimages to cities and sites significant to the civil rights movement, and over that time i have had the privilege of being with, meeting, developing relationships with tremendous foot soldiers of the movement and those who've been impacted by the movement. From Sarah Collins Rudolph, who's that fifth little girl who was in the bombing at 16th Street Baptist Church, to Million Boynton Robinson, now sainted, uh, who was assaulted on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So I've, I've heard some of these stories, uh, you know, firsthand, but it's still been very powerful to read, um, uh, read what these journalists considered what was transpiring. And, and, and really, it opens up the, the sights and the sounds, if you will, of movement and of struggle. Uh, For instance, I'll say this very quickly, in this particular magazine, one of the things that's been really gripping for me is not only were these marchers going through uh, Lowndes County, Bloody Lowndes, which was the most violent planned chapter uh, region in Alabama, but they were getting jeers not only from uh, persons in the crowd who showed up with Confederate flags, things of that nature, but also uh, state troopers were still, even though they were there to protect them, They were still uttering uh, defaming words under their breath as they marched on their way to Montgomery. That's very powerful to me that, you know, persons who are there under the guise of protecting you are still uh, slandering you and speaking down to you. It just added for me another layer of the courage that it took uh, to take this journey and to be engaged uh, in this struggle. So again, that's what I've, that's what I've been reading. Uh, not, not as many books uh, as of late, but uh, just about as many historical accounts and, and uh, magazines as I can get my hands on.
0: Hmm.
1: Wow. Shane, how about you? Well,
3: I got a pile of them here because I've been writing a book. So y'all know how that is. I'm flipping through all these books. I got Randall Ballmer's. I got Dave Gushies. I got the Dorothy Roberts over here, but the one I've just finished is, a friend I think to many of us is, is Lisa Sharon Harper's book Fortune. And uh she this is going to be, <laughs> yeah, boy. Uh, so this is going to be our book club book for February for next month. And I'm excited to talk about it with Lisa. Um, but it tracks her own history. The subtitle is really good, how race broke my family and the world and how to repair it all. So it's very personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, you know, her family in many ways is kind of a microcosm of so many of the abuses and uh, uh, mistreatment and, and uh, things that we, what, what white folks did to black folks. So,
0: yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, I'm on her book launch club uh, or team, you know, for that. So I've been uh, helping to promote her i we're going to be doing an interview with her um, about the book later this week. So, you know, I'm, I'm along with you there. <laughs> Jennifer, how about you? What have you been reading?
2: I'm on uh, Team Lisa Sharon Harper as well. I'm really excited about Fortune. And as I listen to Michael and and Shane, I'm struck um, with something that um, I really explored in my book, which is that knowing our history is really a spiritual discipline. It's a prominent discipline mentioned throughout the Bible, the command to remember. Remember, in particular, you were once slaves and I freed you, that I'm the God who frees slaves. And that command precedes all of the commandments that we find in the Bible, that remembrance. Um, And for those of us who were not once slaves, but were part of families that were slaveholders, we also have to remember from the perspective of people who've been uh, oppressed. And so a lot of my reading recently has been going back and really understanding American history, because as a white person growing up in the South, I was often taught a very quite literally whitewashed version of history. It was a very triumphalist version in the sense that we had overcome, you know, we had the Civil War and overcome slavery, but, you know, you have to understand in the South, it wasn't all about slavery. You know, they would compromise the story, the history that people needed to know. And, um, and so I've been going back, you know, and understanding my family's history um, and even understanding some recent twists and turns in history. So a book I really enjoyed was Heather McGee's the sum of us, what racism costs everyone, and how we can prosper together. And she looks at recent historical events like um, the closure of public swimming pools and parks, how that was done to avoid uh, integration and desegregation, and how it cost white families as well as Black families, especially Black families, but um, it, it cost all of us in the end. The housing bubble and the housing crisis, those were uh, predatory policies that were first uh, pioneered on black families in exploitative ways, ignored. They were the canary in the coal mines. Those strategies were ignored, and then they started to impact white families as well. You know And so she really shows like how these white supremacist racist strategies throughout our history um, uh, end up, impacting all of us. And um, as I work, uh, particularly with white audiences to help them understand the implications of racism, I feel like that's a really helpful way in uh, to helping people understand a very, really another spiritual sort of principle um, that the sins of the fathers are visited on subsequent generations and that what happens, we're all part of one human family and one body. And so Um, understanding the damage that is done and that we need to unite to kind of create the society that um, God really calls us to have.
0: Wonderful. I I love uh, Heather McGee's book too. Uh, I've quoted it quite a bit. Um, I mentioned Lisa Sharon Harper's book the other day in the um, webinar, so I won't um, do that again, but these are a couple of books that I just received. I haven't read them yet. This one's called God and Race. Um, Mm. A Guide for Moving Beyond Black Fists and White Knuckles. So it's co-authored by um, a black gentleman and a white gentleman. Um, how you can play a part in ending racism. So as you guys know, you know, my whole How to Heal Our Divides initiative is all around, you know, this type of topic. So I'm really anxious to um, read that, and I'm trying to set up a interview with those two folks. And then just in the mail today an advanced reader copy for Brian McLaren's next book, Do I Stay Christian? Subtitle is A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. So just like every other Brian McLaren book, I'm sure this is going to be outstanding. and I'm looking forward to reading that as well. So um, (laughs) just a little preview there. (laughs) So in any event, um, I'd like to move on next for um, each of you to talk about what you think is the most important thing right now that um, progressive Christians ought to be concerned about and ought to try to do something about. I know that's, you know, unfortunately, an incredible long laundry list to choose from, but, um, you know, I, I want people to hear from you guys, you know, what you think um, is, is most important. And um, Shane, could we start with you on this one?
3: Uh, okay, I, 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 I would just, uh, I mean, off the top of my head, I think all these, it's really hard to rank issues, right? I mean, I feel an urgency in my soul with the death penalty. Cause I know a lot of folks that are facing execution and proximity makes all the difference. You know, in fact, one of the guys I was writing, uh, I asked, I told him I'll mail you any, any books you need, you know, I'll get them to you. I know how to do that. And, um, I was thinking he would order prayer books and stuff. <laughs> and he said, he wrote me back and said, I've been doing origami. And, uh, and, and I mean, I it, it, as soon as I read that, I just like teared up, you know. And um, because it's just, to, and he had a, actually one of those origami swans that he sent me in the letter. And uh, um, so there's an urgency for me around that, you know, because we're our state is literally killing folks, and Christian governors um, are the ones that are worshiping Jesus on Sunday and signing the death warrants on Monday, so. I do feel a real urgency about that with two executions scheduled this week. But I'll just offer one other thing for the sake of the conversation, too, is this study. I read uh, Kirsten, uh, her book. uh, Yeah, uh, Kirsten Powers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And one of the things that she points out that I think is right up your alley, Brian, and something we can all appreciate is she has a statistic from the More in Common study just a couple of years ago. And this is this is it. 86% of Republicans describe Democrats as brainwashed and 88% of Democrats describe Republicans as brainwashed. But what was just as striking is over 80% of both thought the other group is hateful and evil. And it went on even to say that a a, a stunning percentage think that the world would be better off if they were just gone. And so I think that that kind of hate and polarization, I'm not a kumbaya, let's all just hold hands kind of guy. But I think that, like, there is some real hostilities. And in a country where we've got more guns than people, um, we're in a really fragile place.
0: Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Michael, how about you? Certainly. Well, you know, I'm thinking about to November, I think that was of 2017, when I was invited to offer the opening invocation before the U.S. House of Representatives. And, you know, in doing that, you have to submit your prayer in advance uh, for approval, for vetting. And I I sent a a prayer that I knew was going to be rejected. In fact, (laughs) I told my wife as soon as I hit uh, sin, I said, this is authentically me, but there's no way they're going to allow me to actually get up and say it. And sure enough, other than one word they wanted to shift, which actually I think made it stronger. They let me pray in verbatim what I had said. Wow. And a part of what I prayed, and this is still under the uh, presidency of Trump, I I included in that prayer that God would protect us from the very threat of tyranny. Not surprised I could utter those words on the U S house. Well, Here we are, a year removed from an absolute assault on the Temple of Democracy, uh, that capital built by the hands of the enslaved, which I find fascinating as well. And uh, here I am in a state, state of Texas, uh, which I think in many ways is um, leading the way in making America great again, uh, in the sense of recovering our white supremacist uh, past, and put it into contemporary reality. And already this year, we have seen hundreds of requests for mail-in ballots rejected right here in the state of Texas, which is not by no accident, right? These are the laws that have been passed here in Texas and across the country. Um, I think, and this is not, I don't believe it to be hyperbole. I think the very state of our democracy with all its warts and bumps and the opportunities to continue to perfect it, I think all of that is in jeopardy now. I think we have to sound a very clear call and alarm for what is actually going on, what these laws actually entail, and how we are setting up the playing field to challenge any election uh, that uh, certain persons don't want to agree with the results of. literally to, to challenge it, where, where this idea of being post-truth <laughs> is manifesting itself even at the ballot box. I can't imagine, this is not, and this really is not an issue of whether you're Republican, Democratic, or independent. I mean, this is about our fundamental rights, uh, and they are, and I, I think this is because of my proximity as, as Shane Claiborne uh, has already shared something that Ryan Stevenson, a popular rise. When you have been with, as I have been with, men and women who nearly died for this right. I'm thinking about Jimmy Travis, another name. And I'm always big on lifting up names. Everybody talks about King and I'm a King fanatic, but there are these extraordinary people whose names we don't call, who show no less courage. And one such person is Jimmy Travis, who listened to this, was shot in the head in Greenville, Mississippi, during Freedom Summer. Amazing. Uh, Had the bullet gone in uh, half an inch higher, it would have killed him. Half an inch lower would have paralyzed him. This young man, 20-something-year-old man, lived with a bullet lodged in his head for over 24 hours. Why? Because there was no medical attention that he could receive in the Mississippi Delta. They had to drive him from the Delta to Jackson, Mississippi in order for him to receive treatment. And you know what this man does? As soon as he was able, as soon as they were able to get portion, they weren't able to remove the entire bullet, but as they were able to remove fragments of the bullet from his skull, as soon as he was able, he returned back to Greenwood, Mississippi for the work of registering voters. I I just can't imagine given all of the sacrifices that these beautiful women and men made for us, that we would allow these rights to be taken from us wholesale. And so I, I, for me, personally, I think protecting our democracy, and particularly the fight for our vote, is of the greatest urgency. And it's something that all Christians, but particularly progressive American Christians, should be involved in.
0: Amen, amen. And uh, as Jennifer talked about earlier, I know you're doing a lot in that direction. Um, is that what you were going to uh, talk about too? Or, or
2: uh... I, I, yeah, I was. And um, and maybe just to to tack on and add to that, you know, again, we're following in the wake of the January 6th um, memorial of you know what happened in, during that insurrection. And I'm reminded that there were Christian flags waving high in that crowd. And so I think white Christians, in particular. Need to take down the mythology and the uh, heresy really of christian nationalism we need to be preaching about that we need to be talking to our friends and neighbors about that because it's uh giving cover and justification for uh this move toward autocracy in america and that access to the ballot box isn't um something you know sort of like esoteric it's 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 our daily bread right it's choosing the elected officials who will remove the death penalty who will make sure that everybody has health care um, is, you know, super critical um, to our day-to-day lives and and whether or not human dignity is respected or not. Um, and it's going to be everyday people like those of us on this call that make that happen. We can do it. This election is going to be critical to that. It will make or break. It'll keep the window to democracy open. And I think of this woman, um, Mary Kearney, who I met in, the Black Belt of Georgia in a small town uh, or county called Cuthbert, Georgia. And Mary is about 80 years old. She's been working for access to the ballot box for her people, um, African-American woman, for for decades. She herself has run for office a number of times and been stripped of that office through the kind of shenanigans that we've seen happening in this country recently with an effort to delegitimize her rightful um, Assuming of an office that she was elected to uh, hold. But in 2018, uh, Mary Cuthbert, uh, or Mary from Cuthbert, um, her name is Mary Kearney, was the person who sounded the alarm about the shutting down of many of the voting locations in rural Georgia. And that story became a national story. She's kind of another unsung hero of the kind that, that Michael was talking about where nobody knew her name, it wasn't in the New York Times, but she, this 80-year-old woman who's been fighting all of her life uh, for people in the Black Belt to have the rights that they deserve, she's the one who sounded the alarm because she read it in the fine print on the back page of the newspaper. They had to announce such closing, and she's the one who caught it and elevated it to public attention. And so, um, you know, we're going to be organizing in that region. We have folks there, and um, people are going to be organizing all over the country, and it really is everyday quiet heroes that are going to make the difference in this coming election. And um, it's all about human dignity, you know, and as, as I said in my book, um, uh, Who Stole My Bible, uh, the whole whole of scripture is about resisting tyranny. Um, and so really, um, God's vision is one where everyone has dignity, everyone has voice. And so that cornerstone right is really access to decision making around who represents us and how uh, laws get passed in this country and how we live together. That's just fundamentally how we live together.
0: Well, you know, I I think it's really incumbent on the rest of us to figure out how to support, you know, faith in public life and turnout Sunday and other efforts that are, um, working this whole voting rights issue, because as Michael mentioned, it's incredibly fundamental to the success of our country and, um, our democracy. And so we've got to figure out how to, um, do what we can whether or not the national law goes into place or not there's lots of other things that we can do that need to be done
2: that's right
0: um to me it's at the end of the day what's driving all these different issues is just greed for power and money that's what drives the voting you know issues of probably racism that's why there's guns that's why there's the death penalty i mean it's it's greed for for power and money
1: uh,
0: very very blatantly
1: you know, I, I didn't eject one other thing, too. It. It's also a fear of how our nation is changing. Hmm. And I, I, think, I think that speaks to this idea of power and influence uh, and, and heritage. Whose nation is this uh, already? There's a tremendous article in The Atlantic magazine that explored this very issue. And it discussed the fact, very interestingly enough, that a good number of the insurrectionists, you know, when you tried to connect while they were there uh, in D.C., they came from counties where the demographic shift now has a white person's uh, lower than, quote unquote, historic minorities. Right. And so they are living in the reality of this uh, shifting of demographics. And it's that rage it's that fear. And I think fear has been, you know, unfortunately, uh, the uh, stream under with much of white terrorism has functioned. Uh, it's the way that we're, it's what we're seeing right now. So I, I don't disagree, but I would say that, you know, the, the fear of change, the fear of what this means for our nation uh, is also very prominent in the minds of, of, of certain persons who are uh, who are putting forth uh, these uh, systems of suppression and oppression.
0: I, I agree with what you're saying, Michael, but I, but I think the fear is fear of loss of power.
1: Mm, mm.
0: You know what I mean? I, sure. That's at least the way I interpret it. I mean, sure. like, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or sociologist, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that, anyway. So uh, we've got a couple questions that have come in from um, our attendees. So Jenny is asking, um, I guess my question isn't, should I stay a Christian, but how can I integrate what it means to stay in church and stay a Christian? And I have a good progressive church but it seems less relevant all the time. So any thoughts from any of you about uh, about that?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think um, churches really need to become incubation places for democracy. Um, and I think why we've lost our relevance is because we're not engaging enough the issues of our day, which are core to the faith. There's too much separation between our spiritual lives and how we're living together, which is basically politics or the public square, how, how power is organized in society. And we need to bridge that gap. Um, and it needs to be both. And we need to have deep spiritual lives in which we're recognizing spiritual disciplines like knowing our history. Um, and we need to also be really engaging in our communities and listening to those communities that are most affected by the issues Uh, that are at stake. And and not only that, but reading scripture with the communities that are most affected. And if we could reinvent uh, churches, reinvent our communities in that fashion, um, I think they would be much more powerful, much more exciting, and much more energizing to so many Christians out there.
1: I think that's right. I um I was a part of a, um, special panel with the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. We had a dialogue, multi-generational dialogue about the future of the Black church. And uh, the Pew Research Center was there as part of our conversation. And um, as we were sharing, you know, one of the uh, interesting data points is how many millennials, Generation years and even, you know, to some extent, Generation X. Uh, black are no longer engaged in the life of the historic Black church. But mm-hmm. well, when you ask these same groups what's most important for them about their faith and the way their faith is exemplified in public, they say opposing racism is, is fundamentally important to their understanding of what it means to be a good Christian, mm. to be active in the Christian faith. And I, I raise this as a point, of a recent a plenary that I uh, had to uh, deliver that you have an institution, the Historic Black Church, which was created as a movement against white supremacy and white racism. And yet you have a group of younger black Americans who are saying uh, that their, their passion expression of their faith is to oppose white racism, and yet they're not working together, right? Uh, that frequently those younger generations are absence, absent from the myth, which, which suggests to me, I think oftentimes the church has a uh, bad habit of pointing the finger outward and saying, "What's wrong with you?" But to me, it suggests that there's something wrong with the church. And I think about Dr. King's words in 1963, which I think are underquoted uh, from his letter from Birmingham Jail, which, which I think was a critique of the black church. I actually do, where he said, "Every day he meets young people who are outrightly disgusted." This is 1963, disgusted with the church, right? And 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 don't see any meaning of it. Uh, and it would be irrelevant for the 20th century. That's now extended, I think, to the 20th, 21st century. So, so the question is, which uh, I think uh, Reverend Butler already uh, stated very well, is, is how, how is our faith manifest in the public sphere, right, uh, that there are people who are no longer satisfied? And particularly with the pandemic, which has limited our abilities for in-person engagement, anyway, they're not satisfied with coming to a building and having a program or an event. They want to know how their how their faith is actualizing change where they live, right? And uh, and, and so I, I think that's a challenge. That's about uh, should I remain a Christian? It's more about what type of Christian do we want to be? We want to be cultural Christians who are comfortable in our uh, citadels of congregations and, and, and lifting up holy hands and singing worship songs and going back home uh, without doing anything for our neighbors, or are we really enthused, uh, motivated uh, to follow uh, that rabble raiser named Jesus who said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Wow, that's radical. Coming from Isaiah, recovery of is sight to the blind let the affresco peter declare the year the lord favored that jubilee you know that brown-skinned palestinian jew named jesus born to an unwed mother put on the death penalty by the state hanging out with notorious sinners and women that that jesus so maybe 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 the question is which which is a whole other question than the one was posed is is this an opportunity to introduce people to the real jesus maybe the Jesus that we've been following (laughs) has shown itself to be deficient. And now we need a connection with uh, authentic Jesus and uh, Jesus's mission on earth. Thank you. That's, that's a powerful question. (laughs) Sounds like the mission of red letter Christians, doesn't it?
3: I just say amen to that. Amen. Hallelujah.
0: So one of the things I've been thinking about lately, just you're looking at the structure of an individual church and the model that we've had in place where the pastor is funded by the congregants of the church in, you know, most cases. Right. And if the members of his church are somewhat divided, you know, politically in particular these days, um, you know, the, the pastor unfortunately has got a vested interest in keeping his job. That's his financial livelihood. So, how do you <laughs> deal with issues that need to be dealt with that may not necessarily be comfortable for 50 percent of your population, whatever those issues are, and keep your job and keep your livelihood? It just seems like the wrong business model. You know, it's, If you look at behavior analysis in companies and things like that, which you know I used to do some of this stuff, um, it just doesn't seem like it's the right business model.
3: A, I, you know, I was thinking, that as you were saying that, Brian, another book I grabbed over here that just came in the mail. I haven't read this yet, but it's got a, gra- a very gripping title. It says, Why Can't Church Be More Like an AA Meeting? Uh, and it struck me. I, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I hadn't read that yet, but I've thought about that a lot. You know, and I spend a lot of time with folks uh, in recovery. We're all recovering from something. And uh, one of the, you know, the, the, some of the key philosophies of the recovery movement is they don't own buildings. They don't pay a bunch of staff. They don't have a centralized spokesperson. (laughs) They they don't, they even have written into their DNA. They don't take too large donations from a single person because it would give them too much power. Like all the, I mean, the things that are like causing the hemorrhaging of the church, maintaining buildings and staffing are uh, things that we could take a lot of cues from the recovery movement, I think too, as well as like, um, thinking differently about ministry, right? That, the best ministers are wounded healers, are people who have survived much. Those who have, uh, you know, are, are uh, recovering from uh, substance addiction are, are best equipped to help those who are currently addicted. You know, I mean, in every aspect of what we're doing, that's a model we try to use. So, I mean, to be honest too, it's really outside of Uh, in a lot of parts of the church, bivocational pastors are a very normal thing. And I think that might be a part of the future we need to explore, as well as like creating pools of money. That's what we've been doing in Philly, you know, where we're pulling our money together, not just to maintain staff and buildings, but actually to create a resource to (laughs) build up the neighborhood and to share with people around us. And so I think we need to be a little bit more creative with some of that. And a lot of the reason that people are leaving the church is because they don't want to sink their time and energy into something that's so navel-gazing and just exists for its own self.
0: Amen. Amen. And I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but, you know, Frederick Buechner wrote about, you know, how churches be like AA about 30 or 40 years ago. It's something like it. it was back in the 70s or 80s, and one of his books, you know, he had all some of these books were these just short essay things. And one of them was basically what you were just saying, <laughs> saying about AA and the value of it. Maybe this is really what church was intended to be in the first place. You know?
1: Well Brian, I and I wanna I wanna I want to come back to what you said as so well I don't want <clears throat> to gloss over it because I have a number of friends, uh white pastors, who are no longer pastoring simply because they said black lives matter. Wow. That's it. Just the expression that they believe and it's more than I can hold on one hand. These are persons who have called me that I've attempted to provide uh, uh, companionship and support to who uh, are no longer in their pulpits. Um, And and the amazing thing is, is that for many of these churches that they were serving, if you were to ask them about racism and about white supremacy and where they stood on it, they would, you know, say very clearly, Oh, racism is wrong. Uh, It's not emblematic of who we should be as Christians. And yet, they were motivated to remove these persons as their pastors or, or make well, I remember one gentleman in particular, uh, his budget went down 40% in one year. Folks just stopped giving simply because they said black lives matter. Right. And so uh, that's a very real, there, yeah. I, I, I want to talk about the risk of being a a white woman or white man in a clerical role, uh, serving a congregation and making that statement in America and standing for it. That's not an easy thing. And so I didn't want to you, you put it on the, on the table. I want to really push it there. That really it is a question. It's a difficult situation. It is so a vocation, whether or not I will continue. It always has been there. This is true uh, throughout history. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, we're seeing another generation of persons who are really being impacted in some very negative way
0: yeah yeah thank you for raising that that's another great you know embodiment of that whole issue is that you know examples that you gave so um we don't have a whole lot of time left i want to give folks you three you know time to talk about your upcoming projects you know particularly if you're working on new books because uh you know we all would enjoy uh more books from, from each of you um so I like who will, who should I pick on first
1: uh, on this one? Michael, you want it? I know you got to be working on a new book, okay? Oh, uh, well, I, I am. Hopefully uh, this work over the course of this uh, fellowship year will manifest as a book of study. So I'm in the process of kind of putting that together. I'm also still, this is the latest children's book, Liberty Civil Rights yes. Road Trip. And I've uh, just been really blessed by the reception uh, that it has received and the creative ways in which people are engaging uh, this book, particularly with all this press back against quote-unquote critical race theory and what we teach our children. It's been really a blessing to hear from parents and even teachers who are are saying this is a wonderful way to introduce young people uh, to civil rights history. And so I'm still working in that vein. book recently came out in October, but I'm hearing from uh, schools and, and individuals across the country who are, who are using the book, who are creating study guides along with it. Uh, there's a group in Connecticut that for their MLK celebration in the area, they actually use the book and set up a walking tour for young people to engage in mm. aspects mm. of the book over that walking tour. So it's always, it's always amazing to hear uh, the ways in which it is, it is being engaged. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I have another children's book. I'm looking for a publisher for uh, called A Boy Named Justice was inspired by our youngest son, Justice, born. Uh, he's one years old now, and his entry into the world came over the summer of 2020. Uh, that very volatile summer in, in our country, and so uh, those are two things I'm working on: finding the publisher for a boy named Justice, and uh, doing the, the work right now uh, that uh, hopefully will be completed over this
0: fellowship year. Excellent, excellent. Well, please keep us posted on those, so we can do some more interviews uh, when they come out. (laughs) That that, uh, liberty book is just so good. Uh, I love that one, Shane. I know you said earlier you're right in the middle of working on one, right?
3: Yeah. Well, before I get to that, just so y'all know, I wasn't joking about Sunday night. We're going to be talking about uh, Michael's book, but also uh, just have a few other children's and youth authors because I think it's related to everything we're saying. Right? We got a. not just deconstruct things that people are no longer constructing like Sunday school, but we've got to like build a more robust, uh, faith and resources for young folks. So, uh, y'all, y'all can hear more on Sunday night from, uh, Reverend Michael and every, and a bunch, a couple other people. Uh, I'm, I'm right. I just finished a manuscript that was due last weekend. Hey. And, uh, and th- th- in case I look like I've been living in a cave, whoo, I have been. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and it's, it's on, um, it's tentative. The title might change, but it's tentatively titled the book of life. And it's about a more robust, beautiful ethic of life and how abortion came to eclipse all the other issues, uh, and define what it means to be pro-life, why there's a culture war and resistance to saying black lives matter. I mean, why can't we say that, you know, uh, and, and still believe that we're not saying black lives matter more than other lives. So it's navigating some of that, you know, and, um, telling some stories about what it really means to be uh, for life, not just uh, for birth.
0: So the Sunday night event that you mentioned, Shane, can you tell people again where they can find out
3: more about that? Yeah, totally. So we're doing a book club every month with Red Letter Christians, and we tag team with Brian and everything going on here all the time, and Jen, and we're we're all doing the same thing. So, but the book clubs, one thing that we started in the pandemic, and January is a special book club with four different folks that are writing children's books and youth material. So we're going to hear about that Sunday night eight, uh, seven o'clock, seven o'clock Eastern time, Sunday night, all that's on our socials. And next month, the book that we'll be looking at is fortune with Lisa Sharon Harper.
0: Cool. So just go to the red letter Christians, uh Facebook page. Is that the best place? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Cool. Awesome. Wonderful. Great work. Jennifer, how about you? What, what uh, do you have a new book uh,
2: in the making? <laughs> I wish uh, I wish I did. Um, I can say right now all of my energies are going into this coming year and uh, making sure we, keep our democracy. Um, and so I'm in planning mode and organizing mode. But, um, you know, I was just sitting here thinking, one, I'm so glad for these children's books um, that Jane is promoting and that Michael is apparently writing. When I was raising my son, it was so hard to find those kind of books, right? And he's now going off to college, but we shouldn't have to look so hard. And I think I'm still, you know, thinking about the really good question about, like, how do we rework worship and in, in, in church and in community together in this moment. And um, you know I'm still rolling out my book and uh, using it as a tool in congregations to think about that question actually, that uh, to really try to um, understand that the whole Bible is a vision for a world free from tyranny, from oppression. And uh, that is God's vision for us. And so for us in America at this moment in time, it means a world free from white supremacy, which is what we are founded in. And so what if we re-envisioned, you know, church as a training ground spiritually and physically um, for doing just that through our children's books, through our discipling. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I mean, Michael can remind me because he's the historian here, but I think uh, the black church had a model for that in terms of, uh, was it Saturday schools and the civil rights movement, really oh. training young people and getting them prepared for decades before the civil rights movement was even like as prominent as it became, right? And sure, so freedom
1: schools. Freedom, yeah, free, schools right? freedom school model,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. An obvious name, It just, uh, but the freedom schools, that could be a model um, for how we do church. And um And then I think, too, that, you know, resources are needed, right? Resources aren't a bad thing. I'd be for liquidating many, many buildings (laughs) and putting it into that. Um, I do think we need leaders, too. And uh, training leaders is important and giving them time and space and ability to be able to lead because I do think movements need leadership, although it needs to be a sort of shared leadership model and collaborative leadership model. So my thoughts went back to that in terms of our closing remarks as I try to organize and continue to um, think about writing and, and just kind of share my book with the rest of the world until such time as I can work on a, a new new piece.
0: <laughs> well, to that end, I'll put in a plug-in for a couple of other projects. Um, as you all know, uh, one of the things I lead is publishing in color which is an explicit effort to try to get more books published from writers of color, including children's books, right? So, you know, um, that's an important effort that has um, borne a lot of fruit already. Um, and the second thing is within Compassion Christianity, we have a project that is growing about collecting and enabling um, progressive Christian family um, resources, you know, for, 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 for children's spiritual formation. So you'll hear more about that, you know, in the months to come, but um, you know, both of those are efforts that are ongoing and uh, we'll be, we'll be building. So, um, so thanks so much, Jennifer, Shane, Michael, for, for joining us today. I love spending time with you guys. Uh, Really appreciate all of your incredible work. Um, And folks don't forget that on Thursday, um, same time, same bat channel, 1 PM Eastern, we will have another um, set of three great folks, Diana Butler Bass, Robert P. Jones, and um, Lamar Hardwick. So looking forward to um, that, and uh, hope you can join us then. Thanks so much, everyone. Love being with you.
1: Awesome. See you soon. Bye, y'all. Good to see you. (laughs)